I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Digby Jones, former Director General of the CBI and former UK Trade Minister. On this programme, we're talking business and we're preparing for Brexit. Throughout the last five episodes, I've been hearing from businesses across the UK, from the Outer Hebrides to the West Country, from the East Coast of Northern Ireland to the North Yorkshire Coast, from Cradley Heath in the West Midlands to the Garden of England in Kent. Manufacturing, farming, food, science, technology, they've been getting to grips with new ways of working, new customs arrangements, new processes at the border, they've been checking supply chains and they've been stockpiling their goods. And as we gather at the end of another dramatic week of negotiations with Europe, we're still not clear whether it's going to be deal or no deal. The Prime Minister has told businesses, he's told his own cabinet, indeed, he's telling the country to prepare for a no deal outcome. But who knows? So what does that mean for business? What can be done to get ready for the 1st of January? Whatever comes in the new year. Coming up, there was agreement on trade between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. So how does that change things for companies moving goods across the Irish Sea? I've gathered an expert panel from key sectors in the UK economy, covering food and haulage, small businesses, manufacturing. They're the friends of mine that joined me for those various programmes over the past few weeks dealing with those subjects. And they will share with us what their members are telling them about just how ready they are. And we'll discuss some of the tricky challenges faced by small business as we head to the end of the transition period. Where can companies go for support and advice, even at this late stage? All that in the next hour. Welcome to Preparing for Brexit with me, Digby Jones, here on Times Radio. Joining me throughout today's programme is Callum Jones. No relation. He's the trade correspondent for The Times. Callum, you're very welcome. Thank you. Now, we're talking on Friday morning, uh, 48 hours before the, uh, the show goes out, but also, of course, 48 hours before we've been promised that we'll be told yes or no to whether there'll be a deal or not. That's about three weeks to go until the end of the year, the end of the transition period. From your vast experience and talking to so many businesses, how do things look from the point of view of UK companies? I think it's, as you say, three weeks to go now until the end of this post-Brexit transition period, and we're still not clear entirely what Brexit means. 
And for companies who were told to expect some kind of breakthrough or some kind of clarity one way or another this week, I suppose many won't be that surprised because they've been told there would be so many breakthroughs, so many milestones, so many moments over the last four years. And there were many questions from the early hours of June 24th, 2016, which businesses have asked government again and again and been told to be patient. And I'm sure what you'll hear from some of your guests today is that many of those questions remain with three weeks to go and no one really in business or industry imagined they would find themselves in this position. They were told a year ago, and of course, Boris Johnson won an election on the grounds that he had an oven-ready deal with the European Union. There was just the small matter of also striking a free trade agreement as well, and that's proved to be a lot harder than was suggested this time last year. And do do, do you feel, do you sense that many businesses think that it's not a deadline because we've been here so many times before. There's an element of crying wolf to this, isn't there? Definitely. And there's definitely an element when you speak to uh, a fair few smaller businesses, there's definitely an element of, uh, I think, almost an element of complacency creeping in. And this is something that the government's quite concerned about. Yes. They've been told again and again and that this isn't the first, uh, this isn't the first time they've been told that no deal is just around the corner. And yet, each time so far, the deadline has been postponed. I think what Boris Johnson's been keen to do, what his ministers have been very keen to do throughout this year, is make clear that there will be no more extensions. But mm. that hasn't necessarily been as effective as a message as I think they would. And, it, and it's not just the prime minister to blame on that one, because the EU's got previous on kicking cans down road on various deals over many, many years. So it, it's, well, I think they, every business is entitled to say, you know, why are we here so close to the deadline, not knowing what to do? Uh, there's been plenty of messaging from governments encouraging businesses to get ready. Uh, I think a business would be entitled to say get ready specifically for what? But um, they've been running a series of ads and Here's a flavour of one of those. Businesses that deal with Europe will have to follow new rules from the 1st of January 2021. If it crosses borders, definite actions we need to take already. No matter what. New rules. 1st of January. I'll give you a second to jot that down. 1st of Jan. On Get Ready, it can take longer than you think. So get on in now at gov.uk slash transition. Got it? Good. Well, Callum, do you think they have got it? Do you think companies are listening? There are there are two things that the government has done in the last few months, which anecdotally I think are quite have been quite effective in terms of messaging. The first, Alok Sharma wrote a letter which went out, I think, about four to six weeks ago, which landed uh, through the letterboxes of tens of thousands of businesses, saying quite bluntly, "You need to get ready." That made a lot of small businesses who potentially hadn't thought about getting ready. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. They've had an incredibly busy year uh, to do so and to think about it. The second was that advertising campaign you've just heard, you, you've just been hearing, and you only had to be watching the Great British Bake Off. I'm a celebrity to catch it in the ad breaks. And one thing I'd say about it is the tone has frustrated an awful lot of people because, as you say, get ready for what, prepare for what has been the response that many companies I've spoken to. Uh, have had because it's all very well to say that uh, they need to get ready and they need to be ready for January 1st. But when they still don't know whether or not they'll be trading with the European Union on a free trade agreement or not, that's pretty fundamental in terms of the ease of their doing business. Yes. Yeah. I, 
one of the things that I've been so impressed with, actually, of businesses, and I just wish politicians and 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 critics of business and and indeed a lot of the media, I just wish that they understood the resilience and the in- innovation and the the sheer effort that smaller, well, all businesses, frankly, but smaller businesses put into this. And and they've dealt with coronavirus. They're still here. They're now dealing with this. They're still here. And from stockpiling goods to getting your forms to saying, I need some help and using that help, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really impressed. Do, do you think they're ready for the you know, the difference between no deal and deal. I mean, have they got, have they got plan B? So what, one of the hardest questions to answer for, for anyone, I think, at the moment is the generic, is business ready for Brexit? Because business is so different and so diverse in this country and also in any country. You get businesses of all sizes in every sector, in every region, and it's, it's such a complicated question to answer. That what, what's been clear for quite a long time is that many of the larger businesses are ready and are teed up and are prepared. They obviously have their favoured outcome here. But I, I just recall earlier in the year, before COVID-19 really arrived on these shores, I, I was uh, up, at, up at Broughton speaking to Airbus. And they've been, for example, doing these dry runs with vast beluga aircrafts carrying wings to and from the, the European Union and preparing for disruption. But that's Airbus, which is one of the biggest companies and employers in aerospace in the UK. For a small business in the UK to be preparing, it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, it's a very yeah. different story. And so certainly the question when I've asked whether small businesses and medium-sized businesses have been, been, have been prepared or feel prepared for Brexit over the last few weeks, they say, we're as prepared as we can be. But yeah. we're trying to navigate the guidance on the gov.uk website and we're trying to uh, see uh, as much as we can about what might happen come January 1st. But either it's very complicated and we can't get the answers on our specific case or it's impossible to find out yet until the negotiations conclude. And they, they're doing it in the alternative. They're doing it as to this is if we have a deal and this is if we don't have a deal and they have to prepare for two. I was hoping to actually to have a government minister here this week to to sit him or her down and ask those specific questions. We've asked and we've asked, and sadly, and probably not that surprisingly, they've declined the invitation. So I'm I'm delighted that what we've uh, got for uh, the listeners to be able to get some good meat in this, the last series, are four of my friends over the last series where... Uh, they've been with me for the hour of the program in their speciality, and they've come back today to join me and to explore everything that Callum and I have just been talking about. They're Ali Renison, the head of EU and trade policy at the Institute of Directors, James Sibley, who's head of international affairs at the Federation of Small Business, Elizabeth de Jong, the head of policy for Logistics UK, and Ian Wright, the Chief Executive of the Food and Drink Federation. Can I just say to you all, thank you. Thank you for what you did in those programmes and regular listeners will remember you, but also thank you for joining us today. So we're going to have a roundtable conversation about what is, with the exception possibly of COVID, the greatest challenge that's hit business in peacetime. Let's take an opportunity to take stock. We're, We're talking on Friday. Negotiations are still ongoing. Deadline set for Sunday, heard that before. And the current Director General of the CBI said this week 
that a deal is a huge prize for Britain and no deal is a huge price for Britain. So I'd like to start by hearing from each of you, what difference would it make to your members in your sectors if there is or if there isn't a deal? If there isn't a deal, how ready do you think your members are? Let's start with uh, ladies first. Let's start with Elizabeth. So for us, for the logistics industry, uh, deal or no deal, um, the two big differences are what things cost, what our imports cost, what our exports costs, and then also if we can trade at all. So uh, until yesterday, we weren't certain at all if trucks or air cargo could fly between the UK and the EU. Uh, we've had some certainty on that uh, last night, but it is not quite good enough to give us confidence and to be able to do our businesses. It's just about point-to-point -point flows. So there's still quite a bit further. Um, I think we need to go, uh, should it be no deal, to get some confidence. But the difference between deal and no deal, we've still got customs checks to do, still got customs paperwork to do, still got safety and security checks to do, and all the associated paperwork. So the preparations are still intense, deal or no deal. And it's a whole new language, whole new systems, whole new supply chain and paperwork that we need to get on top of. Yeah. Ian, is that what your members are finding? Yes, I think I agree entirely with Elizabeth, actually. I mean, this is there are a whole different sort of slew of problems that come with tariffs. But even without tariffs, in the situation that we get a deal, uh, and I'm I'm pretty much now of the view that we won't get a deal. I'm, I'm very gloomy on that prospect. But we have animal health certificates. We've got customs checks, plant health checks, driver checks. All of these add cost, delay, and disruption to the food supply chain. And in our case, it's not quite like moving Airbus wings uh, around Europe, as Callum described. Um, I don't mean this rudely, but that is something of a stately process. Um, this, uh, this um, for us, Stuff has to arrive literally on the shelf uh, and be presented to the shopper immediately. Uh, so there's already disruption in, built into the to what comes from the first of January. Uh, I think that will add costs to uh, at least to our members and to supermarkets of somewhere between five and ten percent. Now, whether they pass those on is another matter. Once you get into the business of tariffs, it becomes a binary choice. Do you think that your customer will be able to afford these extra costs and will they be able to get those extra costs from the shopper? And if you sit, and this is true both for the exports going to the EU and for imports coming into the UK, and if you think they will, then you will pass them on. If you don't think so, you will cease to trade. And so, yeah. that's, so the effect of that is twofold. One is that a lot of products or a number of products will cease to be on the shelves very quickly. And the other is that the substituting project, product, or they'll be there in much less profusion, uh, and where they are in less profusion, the substituting products, which might be sourced from the UK, but which might cost significantly less, will inevitably put their prices up to within 4 or 5% of the products that they are planning to replace yeah. because and, of that and, and, market. Yeah, and Ian, you're, as, we, as we know, you're talking primarily about food with your membership. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, there is another one, which is these big supermarkets could absorb that tariff into their profits. 
and carry on getting keeping the choice and having customers paying the same money but just making less money themselves they won't actually cease to try and go out of business i mean they 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 have that choice you were nodding weren't you james when uh, ian was talking then and uh, james Sibley, what what's your view on that so i mean i agree with previous speakers in the sense that deal or no deal there are plenty of things to think about for small businesses but just focusing on on tariffs um, it goes both ways, as Ian says. So for imports, you're looking at, you know, certain imports getting more expensive because the tariff is paid. And that's a, that's a cost that has to be absorbed by small businesses that often they don't have that greater profit margin to play with, really. So you're thinking about P&L uh, when it comes to the, the import costs. Um, but then I just wanted to talk about the, the export issue. So for small businesses exporting into the EU in the future, their customers are going to have to bear the cost of these tariffs. And that becomes a competitiveness issue. And are their customers going to be able to source these products that they previously got from the UK from elsewhere in the EU for cheaper? And that becomes a significant issue for small businesses that can't adjust too easily um, in that scenario. So yeah. tariffs in a no-deal situation are significant. Um, previously, when we've asked our members about this, um, our exported importers, up to a quarter of them indicated that it would be enough, any tariff would be enough for them to reconsider whether they export to the EU. So yeah. I don't I just want to underline that tariffs in a no deal situation are are significant. And and, and, and Ali, you you you, you have a, a wide membership in the Institute of Directors. Um, I often think you know we listen to this from a UK point of view and rightly, but there must be a business in Dusseldorf or Amsterdam or Lyon thinking that they've got the same problems. I think the preparation is a little bit better sometimes on the other side of the channel. And, and that's because it's just not as politicized. So, for example, you know, if you were to ask me what's one of the big differences between deal or don't deal for our members, um, one of the big challenges for services sector members is they have no idea. Um, and that's a big chunk, not all of it, but about sort of two thirds of our membership. And one of the things that I've noticed a lot in the webinars that we've been doing lately is people saying, why is everyone so focused on goods? There's nothing in here for services. Financial services is one of the areas where there's a lot of harmonized EU law. So the more law there is, you know, across the piece, the, the more there is, the more change there is to plan for. But so, for example, stuff that I think a lot of businesses and people don't think about, but it's very becomes very sort of costly to your bottom line if you haven't planned for it. How does VAT work when you're doing services trades? Completely different because it's that thing that once you're outside of the single market, while in some areas it's not harmonized, there's a lot of kind of predictability that we rely on. So if you go and deliver a course online or a sort of presentation to a client in Germany, there are so many bells and whistles you don't have to worry about that you will have to now check the fine print up. Um, so for, for a lot of members, trying to distinguish between deal versus no deal for services is, I think, quite difficult. The last thing I would say briefly on that, though, is that I think one of the big differences will be um, how the level of disruption, because in a deal setting, there is cooperation between the UK and the EU, and you have you know, I, I would anticipate it's hard without knowing to see the deal. I would anticipate that in a deal, you're going to have some kind of derogations, flexibilities that stagger. They don't extend transition, but they stagger kind of the introduction of some of these. And we saw it in the Northern Ireland agreement yesterday. You don't really get that in a deal setting. And, and that to me is the biggest difference is that we've been trying to plan during a negotiation where even the use of kind of guidance material is politicized. And so it's difficult to actually know what's negotiation tactic and what's actual you know, actual, actual fact, yeah. I, I, I can see Elizabeth is very much coming to uh, uh, put her flag down on your desk in that one. I mean, uh, Elizabeth, do you see this threat of trucks being stacked up at ports as a negotiating point or do you see it's a very real threat? 
so I think there are there are it's a, a question as well as deal and no deal and what's written and what isn't. It's, it is that entente cordiale uh, that with a deal, just things will be easier. And we can't quite articulate in what way, but we expect there's more mitigations. Um, down the line. Um, we've been given some mitigations for Northern Ireland, which obviously is subject to its own protocol and own management system there. We are expecting and hoping for more down the line. So I think um, a deal will just give us that hope that it will get better. Yeah. James, do you think so? Uh, yes, I do. And I think one of the things to remember with regards to easements, so there's been considerable frustration with regards to the EU not putting in place easements. But I think one of the things that is easy to forget about is that under WTO rules, the EU has to treat everyone the same. Um, and that's something that a deal could help resolve. There could be things put into a free trade agreement that are allowed under WTO rules that would make it easier for inbound goods from UK firms. Um, but without a deal, you know, the, the EU has to obey the rules and has to be a reliable partner for its other trade partners. So, yes, I completely agree. Yeah. Ali? Yeah. One of the things I just wanted to bring to the attention, and I think that maybe it's gone off people's radar because of all the travel restrictions at the moment. But the, I think the biggest thing that unites service sector businesses around what's going to happen, the challenge at the end of the year and what's going to change is the loss of free movement of people and, and labor. I mean, we know that that's a politically sensitive issue regardless, but the point is it's probably the biggest thing for service sector businesses that they rely on. And I think while the impact of that may be mitigated simply because not many people are traveling at all, even for business at the moment, I think that once the vaccine comes back into the equation and people expect normal service to resume, and you've seen the kind of adverts in different tabloids saying, you know, Britain's maybe barred from the EU from next, you know, a certain point next year. That's simply because you, if you don't have a preferential relationship, you have to sort of go by looking at sort of individual country rules. And so I think the loss of free movement and the question mark that we have about what replaces it is probably one of the big sleeping giants. And, the, you know, people, I think businesses will have a lot of adjustment once travel returns to normal if there's no replacement mechanism yeah. for movement. Of yeah. And, and this, uh, this part of it, I'll leave the last word with Ian. So my concern, I agree with what James said about easements, but my concern is that in the period between now and those easements being established, people are losing customers. So uh, they're not participating in markets. We've heard that European suppliers are not coming to the UK and British suppliers are not going to Northern Ireland because they're worried about the disruption and the difficulty and the lack of profitability. And if you're in that position, you may lose customers. And once you've lost a customer, it's 50 times more difficult to get them back. So whatever we think might happen, I think this is happening now and it is a direct function of the uncertainty. Callum uh, Jones from The Times, you were listening to all of that. Um, one thing that I'm concerned about is there is a degree, I feel, of Europe somehow wanting to punish us. I mean, some sort of um, how dare you attitude. And if you took the emotion out of that, it's as if they've got a one-off chance of dealing with a country that could be a big competitor because we are so big. So even if I remove emotive words like punish and surrender and win and lose and all that, they do have this chance to petter us a bit, don't they? Because we will be such a competitor. I think it's often, it's a point that's made very often, isn't it? That free trade agreements are a lot easier to negotiate if you could ever remove the politics from them. And that's always completely impossible because there are so many stakeholders on either side. Obviously, 
that this has heightened that because this is the Brexit process and this is about the United Kingdom leaving the European Union. We're in unprecedented territory and yes, feelings are running high on both sides. One thing that struck me from that conversation though was, uh, and this is a point which has come up again and again over the last few months, over the whole year, and it's something that the government has in some cases struggled to get through to certain people, individuals and businesses, that there will still there is still this need to prepare, regardless of whether there's a deal or not. So it's, yeah. there's been so much discussion over the, the binary path ahead, whether Britain has a deal, whether it doesn't have a deal. Uh, I think it's what Boris Johnson refers to as Australian style or Canadian style terms with the European Union going forward, essentially, whether we have a free trade agreement or not. But either way, there's a lot of preparation and a lot of change. Uh, the key thing about no deal, and it was something that was touched upon a few moments ago, is that the impact of that lack of cooperation, the, the impact of the souring politically in relations and what that might mean in terms of the situation at the border, if you're trying to get your goods through, or even for, for service-based businesses as well, could make things even more difficult. Well, thanks very much, Cameron. You're listening to Preparing for Brexit with Digby Jones. This is Times Radio. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Preparing for Brexit with me, Digby Jones, here on Times Radio. It's the final episode in my series where I've been taking the temperature of businesses around the country, different sectors, different places, different sizes, and hearing what they've been doing to get ready for the 1st of January, the end of the transition, whether there is a deal or whether there isn't. And of course, we all know it's not long to go now. And as I gather together my guests, my friends over the past few weeks, no agreement on whether there will be a trade deal or not is still hovering there. We're recording this just 48 hours before we've been told there's another deadline. But of course, we have all of us heard that before. One thing that was agreed was how the rules in the Brexit divorce deal will be implemented in relation to Northern Ireland. And if you've been listening to my series, you'll know that this was an area of key concern for business, not just those in Northern Ireland, but those who traded with them. Here's Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove announcing the agreement to Parliament this week. I'm pleased to say that on Monday, 
The European Commission Vice President, Mavel Shevkovich, and I, as co-chairs of the Joint Committee set up to negotiate the implementation of the protocol, came to an agreement in principle on a deal which meets all of those commitments and puts the people of Northern Ireland first. This deal protects unfettered access for Northern Ireland businesses to their most important market. And as the Prime Minister underlined, this had to be protected in full. And that meant removing any prospect of export declarations for Northern Ireland goods moving from Northern Ireland to Great Britain. And that's what our agreement will do. There will be no additional requirements placed on Northern Ireland businesses for these movements, with a very limited and specific exception of trade in endangered species and conflict diamonds. This deal would keep goods flowing between Great Britain and Northern Ireland in January, and indeed provide some necessary additional flexibilities. It protects Northern Ireland's supermarket supplies. We heard throughout the year that traders needed time to adapt their systems. That's why we've got a grace period for supermarkets to update their procedures. And our agreement also prevents any disruption at the end of the transition period on the movement of chilled meats. British sausages will continue to make their way to Belfast and Ballymena in the new year. Well, that was Michael Gove announcing that in Parliament, and my friends are still with me. And given that he ended with sausages, I can't think of a better segue into Ian at the Food and Drink Federation. Uh, how important is the flow of foodstuffs to and from uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Ian? Well, it's very important because uh, because Great Britain is the major supplier to Northern Ireland supermarkets, and Northern Ireland actually is a net exporter of food to the UK. So both are important trades, but they are different. So the trade from the, uh, from the, from GB to Northern Ireland is more in finished products. Um, and it really is supplying the supermarkets and the convenience channel and hospitality when it's there. And the trade the other way is much more in what I would describe as more primary products like dairy and meat. And, uh, and of course, not, uh, it's fascinating that Michael ended that. Uh, speech or that clip ended on Michael's Jim Hacker play to save the great British banger. Uh, it's become a kind of shibboleth in British politics that every politician <laughs> sees the hacker route to number 10. And he, of course, got to number 10 because he saved the sausage. And that's what Michael's doing there. Actually, it's only been saved for six months and they will have to work out a, full, a longer solution. And I think one of the, the, the grace periods are very welcome. There's no question about that. But the real question for UK traders doing business in Northern Ireland is, can they do so profitably in the future? And if they can't, they won't. Yeah, a six-month sell-by date for a sausage. That's the country with. Um, he talked, didn't he, James, about small businesses having fewer checks. Your guys must be pleased with that. They are. They are pleased. But I think with what's happening with Northern Ireland, that a lot of it will be a proof is in, in, in the pudding situation. So um, if you look at the detail of this, a lot of it relies on, for instance, trusted trader schemes, um, which can definitely remove a lot of checks for uh, goods going back and forth. But trusted trader schemes can be quite problematic for small businesses. They're quite expensive. Um, they rely on, for instance, putting up collateral. Um, you could, you're talking about tens of thousands of pounds potentially uh, for registering for these schemes. So Welcome progress from the Joint Committee, but we need to see how it works in, in practice, really. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth, when you were my friend on that programme a, a few episodes ago, uh, you actually said to me that you were concerned that the check on the Northern Ireland border with Ireland just wasn't fit for purpose. Does anything you've heard in the last week say that your concerns are answered? 
we're not there yet. Um, we'd been really, really pressing for mitigations to help that administrative burden uh, on businesses involving supplying Northern Ireland communities. And uh, we had thought we would get more from our discussions with ministers as well. Uh, so we're hoping more is to come. So unfettered access, Northern Ireland to Great Britain, we sort of expected that. UK trader scheme with no tariffs, GB to Northern Ireland, we sort of expected that. But we were wanting a much longer um, grace period uh, for, for, for traders for their SPS checks. And uh, we wanted that to include all retails, not just agri and plant um, products as well. So uh, at the moment, this is still potentially damaging to uh, the great British economy as well as the Northern Irish economy. economy yeah. And, and, and Ali, you, you, uh, you heard what Michael Gove said. Uh, are you any clearer on exactly what has been agreed that was different from a couple of days before it? To some extent, but obviously when a, a politician minister on either side of the channel gets up to sort of give their version interpretation of what they agree, there's always going to be a little spin, isn't there? So that's why I think everyone's waiting for the actual guidance um, to see what the EU publishes in terms of what it sees is what the rules are um, and the legislation itself. Ultimately, I think it really emphasizes the fact that, um, you know, Really, to understand what the impact's going to look like, you sort of need to know what the wider relationship between the UK and the EU is going to look like. Because ultimately, yeah. you know, the need for the concerns about controls, the extent of controls, the extent of the new documentation, um, what businesses in Northern Ireland and what the government, I think, ostensibly is and should be most worried about is that effectively Northern Ireland businesses just become the path of least resistance for GB suppliers and customers just becomes too great and they look to sort of go somewhere else. Yeah, and that's, that's, it. Yeah, that's it. That's Ian's point on losing your customer and competition. Elizabeth, you want to come in? Yes, just wanted to say a shout out almost for the post and parcel sectors. That's a blank uh, bit of paper uh, for Northern Ireland that they're still working on. But it is so important. It's about 7,000 consignments per truck. Some people bring over 30,000 consignments a day and they've still got to fill in paperwork, 36 data entry fields for every single consignment. So we've got to get breakthrough there too. Yeah. And, and Ali, when, well, Ali, I interrupted you, but, but yeah. just to ask, you know, you, you've all referred to this guidance that's going to come out on this. Have you any idea when it's going to be published? We think maybe next week. Um, I think they're sort of probably waiting for uh, just sort of legal scrubbing probably with you to get it straight. I mean, but for me, one of the things that was reported, I don't think it was necessarily in the command paper, but one of the things that was reported last night was that the UK was going to unilaterally agree to align to sort of um, certain agri-food rules, but temporarily, basically for as long as these kind of flexibilities and derogations last. And again, for me, that just re-ups the fact that, you know, we're in the situation because the previous prime minister had said that, you know, when there was the backstop, if it was ever activated, that she would unilaterally align to EU rules that, you know, Northern Ireland still had to follow so that you didn't have that sort of disruption to internal UK trade. And obviously, the government sort of said that it's not going to do any of that alignment this time around. And that's where the sort of trying to find out ways in the absence of aligning to EU rules because the government doesn't want to, but to still minimise the impact of the new controls. That's the sort of devil in the details and space that we're in. Well, one person that this is bound to affect is Sarah Hards. She's the business development manager at AM Next Day, based in Larne in Northern Ireland. And she, like many others, has been waiting for news about how the flow of goods across the Irish Sea is going to work at the end of the transition period. Now, you'll recall that we spoke with Sarah a couple of weeks ago 
and asked how were those big questions still outstanding going to be resolved. Sarah, you're welcome. Hi, Digby. Thanks for having me again. Uh, it's a pleasure. Welcome back. <laughs> um, we spoke. We spoke a couple of weeks ago, uh, and and it does seem this week that things have got a bit better. What what has happened exactly? Yes, well, the command paper was released last night regarding the Northern Irish Protocol, um, and there are definitely some positives there for sure. Um, you know, we have been reassured that there will be no tariffs on goods coming in from GB to NI, and that there will be unfettered access uh, from Northern Ireland to GB. Those things we we were pretty sure were going to happen in the first place. Um, some things that um, came out last night is that there will be no SPS checks, so sanitary and phytosanitary goods coming in from GB, which is is a positive. Uh, it's a, there's no formality there for our retailers and our, our smaller customers coming in um, on their kind of uh, food and animal origin product goods until April. It would have been great to see that extended for another couple of months, but um, you know they they won't have to do kind of those certifications. Will make it a little bit easier in the transition. Um, however, chilled meats, your pies, your mince, your sausages, things like that, your burgers will have these checks from the first of January. So everyone has to get on board with that pretty quickly. And, and do you think? And do you think that? And is that that's a change this week for the better uh you know this it would have been nice to have that pushed back as well with the checks on the on the chilled meats and things but you know to kind of uh to have no sps formalities for the other goods for a few months yes it is good it will ease things it will help our customers and do you have all the information you need to move stuff in either directions we are still waiting on the detail. That was the only kind of one of the disappointments about, you know, the the kind of information received last night is we really are still up in the air with the detail as to how um, kind of detailed um, these uh, documents that they still have to do. We still have to do customs declarations. We still have to do safety and security declarations, but we don't know to what level is it for each store? Is it for each trailer of goods coming in? Is it for each pallet? Um, and then digging down beneath that, is it, you know, looking at commodity codes for every single product on a pallet where there could be 100? You know? and, and, you still, and you still don't know that? No, we still don't know that. We so still don't you've know, got to know that. You've got to know that in the next two or three weeks. Obviously. Exactly. And we have to train staff and have our customers train staff or get customs agents in. You're going to have a very that. busy Christmas, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly, and, exactly. And and I know this is the $64,000 question and, and it's unfair in a way, but how does the 1st of January look for you right now? Uh, like a mad rush. Um, I, I can only presume that we are going to be all hands on deck for some of our customers to, to get their goods in. We're going to be trading, you know, throughout Christmas, um, between Christmas and New Year, having freight coming in and being delivered. And on January 1st, I really hope it is going to be that light touch that we've kind of been, not been promised, but it's been suggested. Um, but I really don't know, are we going to be made an example of and, and you know, trucks pulled, pulled aside at the side of the road and not making the crossing of the Irish Sea? We just don't know. Now, throughout this series, 
We've put small businesses at the centre of our discussions. Indeed, they've been the stars of our shows. And they've shown us just how resilient UK small business is in so many ways. They've just been getting on with planning as best they can for the end of transition. So having heard from Sarah about the problems in Northern Ireland, here's a flavour of some of the concerns that were raised in the programmes over the past six weeks. What Brexit did, of course, was change the mood music. So all my customers think, oh my goodness, you know, West is no longer going to be in the EU, blah, blah. So, so what that has meant is that they have made their own plans and they've started to, in the beginning, in the first few years, they thought we're going to have a deal, everything's going to have a deal, it's going to be fine. Yes, you'll be fine, I reassure them. But now as we cruise towards the deadline and we see no deal, I can assure you we've lost significant business in the yeah. last couple of, well, 18 months particularly, when, when my customers see it as a risk mitigation exercise to not be yeah. dependent on the UK in the same way. The European market is very uh, important. And the, the, the most um, immediate threat, if, if there is a no deal, is that we would face a tariff of, I think, it's 7 8%, something like that. And that would have to be absorbed into... Uh, the costs, you know, because of the process, we're already a little bit more expensive than, than some uh, other fabrics. You know, you can't go back and say, look, we're adding on uh, you know, almost 10% to the, to the cost. The pinch point is going to end up being Dover, the channel, Portsmouth to some extent, and what we call the non-inventory ports, the, the ports that are not currently directly linked to the custom system. And, and our concern there is that information is still very short. Literally before this meeting, I attended an HMR briefing for the software houses for the new goods vehicle movement system that they're introducing. And it's clearly yeah. not ready. Whatever happens, we are going to work probably 24 hours in advance until it settles down so that we can, because you can't kind of put off a funeral. I mean, weddings are going ahead at the minute, but with funerals, they are. So if we've got an order to, for a funeral, we can't actually say to them, well, the flowers are still stuck on the lorry, so we can't deliver it. So we will start working 24 hours in advance from probably the 30th until we can see it settling down. It might That might take a month. It might take six weeks. I have really no idea. But we have no choice but to kind of just deal with it. All of us transport guys, we still really don't know quite what's happening. The nearest thing we've done in, in the last few weeks is to apply for ECMT permits, which are the permits that we need to go into um, all of the European countries. And I spoke to, funny enough today, the, the local RHA international office, and um, there is only 2,088 ECMT permits, which are permits you need to sort of go into Europe, being allocated. And there's about 12,000 regular users of, of trucks going into Europe every sort of uh, week or every month. Now, as you know, we asked the government minister to come on the programme and deal with some of these points but they declined. However, in the last few minutes, they have actually sent us a statement to deal in their mind with some of those points. Uh, Callum Jones, you've had a look at it. What does it say? Yes, Digby. So a UK government spokesman uh, makes a number of points. The first uh, is that the government, in their words, is working hard to make sure that a zero tariff, zero quota deal is reached, as the government and its negotiators have been doing for a lot of this year. They also say that the UK could prosper under what the government calls Australian style terms, which is, to you and me, a no deal Brexit without a free trade agreement. But they do make the point that the government is making 
mitigations and encouraging business to make preparations with now less than three weeks to go. It makes the point that the government has sought to intensify its engagement with businesses, doing things like that advertising campaign you and I were discussing earlier, and also setting up a Brexit business task force as well. Yeah. And they, they, they seem to be making quite a show of spending an awful lot of our money, uh, probably rightly, on, uh, on the borders. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So the spokesman lists various investments that's been made. So they say £705 million has been spent on jobs, technology, infrastructure at the border. They've even provided £84 million in grants to boost the customs intermediary sector, which will uh, be dealing with this huge rise in demand potentially at the turn of the year. The one thing I would say about that £84 million, though, is there's a reason why they say it has been made available, because some companies have not yet taken that opportunity. That's amazing, isn't it? With only three weeks to go and they haven't yet taken opportunity of the money. If you're listening to it, get your application in, I say. Um, looking down through the, uh, through the statement, towards the end, uh, they do refer to something that the EU has now announced about trade for a few months. This smacks of kicking the can down the road. What, what's that? So this is about mitigations that have been announced by the European Commission under a no-deal Brexit. And this is something that uh, companies in the logistics sector, but also in many industries, have been wondering about for quite some time. And there wasn't any clarity on that until this week. And, th- and it's this. The EU published what it called a temporary measure that would permit journeys to and from the EU, uh, even in the absence of even in the absence, sorry, of a free trade agreement for six months without the need for any permits, which does simplify uh, the ease of doing trade with the European Union and certain markets that uh, we are very reliant on, in theory, the government says it would use that six-month grace period to put alternative permanent arrangements in place. But as you say, kicking the can down the road. Yeah. And you can't therefore blame a business for thinking that uh, deadline doesn't mean deadline again. Absolutely. That hard deadline that we've been told again and again is December 31st looks that little bit softer now. Yeah. Thanks very much. And so, James, what did you think of all that? So I think in those those clips that you've just played and the announcement you just read out, you've kind of got an overview of the situation as it is. We've heard about um, how small businesses, they're really doing their best to deal with this situation. You know, there's a lot of innovation going on. There's a lot of small business owners really trying to flex their time and respond to this as best they can. I mean, they know that they need to make changes, deal or no deal. They know we're leaving the customs union in a single market. But despite that, there continues to be a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, we've heard about uh, whether there's going to be tariffs or not, and how do you actually plan for your product increasing by seven to eight percent in cost for your, your customers? And we've heard about you know problems at the, the border with regards to logistics. So I think small businesses are doing what they can, but there's only so much you can plan for. So I think our message to small businesses has been: do what you can to prepare. There's a lot you can do now, and then just try and you know cope with things as they as they emerge in the next few months. And the other message I think that I have to government is also that the job of preparing and supporting small businesses doesn't just end at the end of this year. Government's going to do have to, have to do a lot in the next few months, next year, to really help small businesses get to, up to speed with all these changes that are coming in. We're now two, three weeks from the end of the year. There's more changes potentially in a trade agreement. We're going to have to help small businesses understand that and act on that quick, as quickly as possible. Yeah. Elizabeth, I, I was, was uh, very worried to hear that David Rogers, who put stuff on trucks every day in either direction and saying that there were just not enough permits to allow his truck fleet to do what they've got to do. And we are three weeks away from the end of the transition. 
Are you finding that across all your members? Uh, yes, that is uh, the fact. So the permits were allocated uh, the day before yesterday, and uh, there were 10 times more applications for permits than there are permits. So that's uh, um, incredibly impactful in ways that we almost can't believe um, on businesses and their ability to plan for just three weeks' time. Um, there was the agreement yesterday that these point-to-point journeys, one load there and return, will be allowed for six months. But that's just not how people work in terms of logistics. You you load up your truck efficiently and you do lots of journeys. Um, it's only a little bit to give give him. But, uh, Elizabeth, uh, here am I, Nick Ramos. Um, what I what I just don't understand from that answer, or indeed uh, the fact, the very fact, I don't mean your answer as much as the facts, are that it, someone's applying for a permit and they're actually being told they can't have one. Yes, that's right. There aren't enough permits. Well, who's got, you who's got is that? Is that the UK government or is that the European Union? Um, so we've asked for more permits from the European Union. It's from the European Union and some other countries. We're going to have to go back to pre-EU times for what existed before. And it used to be a paper system of permits that existed a long time ago. So we're having to go back to the group that administer that. We've asked for some more permits and that has been blocked by a number of countries. They've said no. But but why why would they block it? Because it'll hurt them the same as it'll hurt us. Um, it's it, uh, indeed, uh, I think this is all part of a political decision making. And when I talk to uh, people in other countries, uh, even from trade associations or businesses or even from uh, ambassadors, there is an emotion about this. How can Britain leave the EU? And I, I do believe that the stance they're taking on this is uh, it's emotional, it's political as well as practical. And a lot of those trucks to which Elizabeth refers is going to have food on it. And, and presumably, we talked about tariffs and we talked about the absorption of it or not, the passing on of it. But the concept of delay with perishable goods must really worry your members. Well, it re- yeah, across the whole of the food and drink industry, it's a big concern because particularly in this post-COVID world, uh, previously, about 70% of our product would go through supermarkets and other retailers and about 30% through hospitality, out of home, uh, contract catering. But at the moment, the figure going through supermarkets and other retail is up at about 85, 90. Um, and the consequence of that is that everything has to be just in time, not just, uh, fresh food, but also all other food because supermarkets no longer have big stores at the back of the store. They've, they've liberated that space and all of the product is on the shelf. And that yeah. means that if it doesn't arrive, two things will happen. One for the supermarket. One is the shelf will be literally empty. And that's what we saw in March at the start of the COVID crisis. The shelves couldn't be replenished in time. It wasn't that there was no food in the system. It was that they couldn't be replenished in time. Now, the big worry is that you get that effect either because of uh, lorries arriving late or even because of the current difficulties at Felixstowe. Somebody clocks that immediately. It's on social media baked beans out of stock in Harwich or whatever, and it goes viral. And suddenly you've got, you haven't actually got a crisis because the shelves everywhere else are full, but everybody thinks the shelves are empty and they pile into the supermarket to stock up. 
And that so, is how buy happens. Yeah. So buy baked bean futures. That's the answer. No, no, I specifically <laughs> did not say that. <laughs> Ali, Ali, yes, bring you in. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's worth also reflecting that what was announced yesterday by the EU, um, amongst other things, which I think Elizabeth was referencing there about sort of the permits and road connectivity and sort of aviation safety and airline co- connectivity and all the rest of it, <clears throat> they're contingency measures that were released by the EU. And I'm not surprised that they weren't that generous because there's been this constant tension between, I think, the UK has always been more willing to countenance and indeed talks about how no deal is no problem, um, but being willing to take unilateral facilitating measures to make it not as impactful. And I think the EU has been much less willing to do that because they want to put it all into the deal. And so there's this kind of mismatch in a way. And I think that's why you get less than generous. I would definitely say the UK has been more far more facilitating in the unilateral measures that it says it wants to take if there's no deal. But that's also because it's always been much more willing to go for no deal as opposed to being binded into the EU. Yes, very good point. Uh, And that brings me actually to um, a last question that I'd like to ask all of you. It's a big if that there'll be no deal, but it's looking increasingly as if there will be no deal. What do you think Britain will look like from a business trade point of view one year from today if there's no deal in three weeks' time? Let's start with uh, let's start with Elizabeth. So, what gives me hope is what we've already been through this year. So, we've been through COVID. I can talk about my uh, my sector, um, and we were resilient. Our volumes were hit in ways we we can't imagine, but we did keep going. Uh, we learnt new ways of working. We were efficient. We optimized. And I think we will take this as a country uh, head on. There will be pain, but we will get through it. Uh, We'll learn what to do and we will be flexible, resilient and deliver. Thank you. James? I think I'd agree after a year, you know, as we've seen this year, small businesses are flexible, they are resilient. Um, And one thing we know from our own membership is that small businesses, you know, they don't just trade with the EU. There's also a global element. Over the past four years, we've seen trade with the US increase, for instance. Um, Small businesses will try and adapt. There will be disruption. They'll have to account for that. Um, But, you know, I believe in our our, our business owners. They they know what they're doing um, and they're they're resilient. So uh, I'm I'm still optimistic uh, regarding the area. I mean, I think to some degree, I hate to say be that person, it depends on whether we get back around the negotiating table. Um, You know, the one thing that I would hope would be would avoid, and I think if we can avoid that in a no deal setting, which is a big if, um, then it makes it a lot sort of easier to chart further down the road, um, is that you don't want constant spats between the UK and the EU arising in a no deal setting, um, because then basically you not only have sort of that uncertainty over what the future might or may not bring, um, but you also have actual sort of trade disputes and trade spats. And I think that if that happens, then potentially I feel a little bit less optimistic because no one wants to be in a constant state of um, antipathy and ant- um, animosity with your closest market. So I'm optimistic as long as uh, I think both sides eventually get back around some kind of negotiating table. Yeah. Ian, as a last one. Just to pick that point up from Ali, I mean, I think the first a few months of this are going to be quite rocky and quite uh, random. So I think things will happen that we don't expect. And I think there will be some food uh, shortages in the sense that there'll be some products not on the shelves. But I don't think we'll run out of food. And I think at the end of this process, our shoppers will have a a considerable array of choice, perhaps a bit less than they've had. 
but probably different choices. But the one thing I do think will happen within a year is that we'll be back around the table with the EU negotiating a trade deal. Um, and Digby, you'll probably have another program to run on what the implications of that trade deal will be. Do you, do you know, uh, you could have written, written them my thoughts on that. Um, I, I think, well, I know that there's a spirit in some of the French negotiators saying that they'll have us back around the table with our tail between our legs begging for a deal. Um, and, and I find that offensive. I also, of course, don't believe that will be the way, but I think Ian is right. I think that you will find that both sides realize life is better for their citizens if there is a deal. And I think that life will move towards a deal, maybe not within a year, but certainly within a couple. I, I think that's probably on. Um, and there is an element to kick the can down the road with this statement from the EU. I, uh, I read out by, on the government response about the fact that they're saying, well, you know, they will allow these the goods either way to get through the the, the jam on January the first. Well, there's a little bit of an element of not yet, you know, not yet. Um, could I just thank you all, uh, Ali Renison, the head of EU and trade policy at the Institute of Directors, James Sibley, head of international affairs at the Federation of Small Business, Elizabeth de Jong, head of policy at Logistics UK, and Ian Wright, the chief executive of the Food and Drink Federation. Thank you for your time in your program. In the last few weeks, thank you for your time today. And uh, I guess I'd sum up by saying to you all, every one of your members is hoping that uh, common sense will win through. There's a bit of a problem with that, of course, which is sense has never been that common, has it, really? Thanks very much indeed. And Callum, what do you think? You've just asked the impossible question, haven't you? I mean, it's impossible to see what happens over the next 12 days, let alone the next 12 months. So it's very, very hard to predict where we'll be this time Next year, the, the UK is about to transform its economic relationship with its largest trading partner for the first time in decades in the midst of a global pandemic. We're already seeing at can, container ports over the last few days and weeks that collide at, at the coalface, but we'll see how that progresses over the next few days and weeks. But in 12 months' time, uh, I think as some of uh, your guests have said, business has proved this year it's nothing if not resilient. So let's try and cut through the fog with a, with a bit of optimism. Let's hope it's not uh, pie in the sky, but it, let's hope it's a it's realistic optimism. Some of the economic disruption business and government would expect in the event of a no deal over the first few months is likely to be to subside or be mitigated in in some way as companies and officials really get to grips with the new reality and work through some of the teething issues at the border. The extent of that is impossible to gauge at this stage. On a political level, and this is where we hear Boris Johnson and other ministers talk about the opportunities of what you and I would call no deal, what they would call the Australian style outcome, is the various trade deals that ministers want to strike around the world. The question and where some of the scepticism comes in on the industry side is whether the opportunities and the trade deals with Australia and New Zealand and possibly the United States and other trade blocks like the Trans-Pacific Partnership would ever mitigate the disruption of a no-deal Brexit. And that's the question uh, that ministers are facing at the moment when they talk about their vision for the years ahead. Yeah. And I can't let you get away having asked the others and put them on the spot. So I must do the same to you. Uh, no deal. And then a year on. Where are we? 
I think there'll still be that there will still be a, d- a degree of disruption because obviously when you put up barriers to trade like that, it is going to change trade flows. It is going to tra- change trade uh, patterns from the tariffs, but also from the additional non-tariff barriers that will be caused by uh, a no-deal departure. That's not to say, though, that the disruption that we would see on day one, on week one, on month one, or even in the early months of a no-deal Brexit would be there forever. I think you would begin to see some changes in long-term trends, though, in terms of where the country sources some of its products, sources some of its components. And, of course, that may well have an impact on some of the companies that choose themselves to base themselves in the UK in the longer term and those that don't. Yes. And, And you would think that, Ian, if you remember, Ian Wright said, there will be a trade deal down the line. Do, would you agree with that? Throughout the years, there have been various people who have been very optimistic throughout all of it and said, look, there is there is political noise here. But fundamentally, both sides in an ideal world want a deal and would be better off under a deal. But right now, it feels a bit too close to call, doesn't it? Because we're run, running right down to the wire as these things do. But if I was a betting man and I'm not, I would probably say that we should expect a deal. But then again, it's getting pretty close to the wire now. Yeah. Thank you. Callum Jones, trade correspondent of the Times, thank you for your time. And thanks for your insights as well. Well, that's it from me for the series. Uh, I thank everybody today, but I guess the stars of the show have really been the tremendous businesses all over the country in all that they do, and just how resilient they've been through the most difficult year since 1945, and also now facing the huge uncertainty of a different relationship with their biggest trading partner. And can I also thank you for listening? You know, at the end of the day, programmes like this don't exist unless people tune in. So thank you for that. And it's important that as a nation we understand how important business is to ensuring that money is made for the nation which can pay for all the public sector delivery that we need. And so I wrap this up with a thank you for listening. And this is Digby Jones preparing for Brexit on Times Radio. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.